Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. Intravenous fluid resuscitation is a common therapeutic intervention in patients with sepsis-induced hypotension and septic shock. For years, early and aggressive fluid resuscitation has been advocated without high levels of evidence to guide clinicians. Over the last several years, concerns for potential harm with overly aggressive fluid therapy have been raised by experts based on observation and retrospective studies. In today's episode of the podcast, we will discuss fluid management for sepsis-induced hypotension through the lens of the recently published CLOVER's clinical trial. Our guest is Dr. Nathan Shapiro. Dr. Shapiro is a professor of emergency medicine at Harvard Medical School and an attending physician in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Dr. Shapiro is the vice chairman of research for the emergency department. He is a renowned clinician, educator, and researcher with over 200 peer-reviewed publications. His research interests include sepsis, translational research, and the overlap of critical illness between emergency medicine and critical care. Dr. Shapiro is a lead author and investigator for the recently published Clover's clinical trial. Nate, welcome to Critical Matters. Great. Thanks for having me. So I, I think that we both grew up in the, in the era of a lot of fluid and early, and obviously a lot of that was um, triggered through the Rivers trial, and I, I still remember uh, being uh, taught that edema and some of the other consequences of overly aggressive fluid resuscitation were just cosmetic and kind of like, um, that's the price we pay to, to save these patients. But over the years, obviously, that pendulum has kind of moved, and uh, we now are having finally some high-level clinical trials um, uh, published in the last couple of years that are trying to maybe give us a little bit more evidence in terms of and elucidating this very complicated issue of fluids, which is something we do every day, yet don't really know how to do very well, it seems, yet. So could you start maybe, Nate, giving us a little bit of a perspective, an overview of how we got from Rivers to the famous or infamous 20 ml, 30 ml kg bolus to where we are today and setting the stage for why you and your co-investigators thought about um, moving forward with the Clover's clinical trial? Sure, I'd be happy to. So I'll take us actually back a little bit before Rivers. So before 2001 Rivers, when you had patients with sepsis, a lot of times patients were maybe not attended to so quickly. Um, maybe there wasn't compulsive fluid resuscitation, and there was a little bit of unintentional neglect. And when Rivers came, I think it did two things. One is it really threw down the gauntlet to say, look, if we pay attention to these patients and resuscitate them better, there's an opportunity to realize morbidity and mortality benefit. We can do something that's going to make a difference. And if we act early, we can do something that's going to make a difference downstream. And with the Rivers trial, it was really, if you think about it, it was a structured approach to, doing a, to, to performing a careful resuscitation. It was a structured approach to look at endpoints for your fluids or your vasopressors, and if those endpoints aren't being met, to escalate your therapy. And so that forced us also to give more fluids. Um, one thing that ha- one one observation from uh, Peter Rosen, who's kind of a one of these uh, 
forefather of emergency medicine in many ways. When he looked at rivers, he just said, look, one thing it's doing is it's giving doctors are good at treating numbers. So when you say make a patient volume replete, that's hard for them. When you say put in a CVP and make that number between 8 to 12, doctors know how to do that. And so rivers really forced us to give a compulsive resuscitation. Then what happened, though, was, you know, I, I think um, the Rivers trial gets a lot of credit with, with changing the mindset of physicians. And the mindset then shifted to let's sepsis identification is important. And it's also where the surviving sepsis campaign came in, which is just general sepsis awareness. Resuscitating patients with sepsis is important. Getting to them early is important. And the mindset of clinicians changed. And my interpretation is it changed so much that when process, promise, and arise were performed, there was a mindset shift. So the once under-resuscitated control groups from the era kind of pre-rivers or peri-rivers, those had gone away to the point that we didn't necessarily need a, a rigid protocol in order to do a good resuscitation. So let me pause there. Um, I know it's a bit of a monologue. But. No, I think that's perfect. And, and, and I think you bring up a, a very important point that is directly relevant to what we're talking about, but I think also translates into many discussions in, in critical care and in medicine in general, which is the importance of context, right? A, a lot of people look at the river study from a, a, a point of view of what we know today, and it's easier to say this, say that. But you are absolutely correct. At the time when it came out in the early 2000s, patients were not being treated aggressively, were not being recognized. And probably, like you said, there was a, a, a level of neglect that probably impacted outcomes. And changing that mind shift, I think, was perhaps the, the greatest uh, value of the Rivers trial, which I'm pretty sure till this day is probably, if not the one of the most quoted and reference studies in critical care. But like you said, I mean, it just kind of put a very bright light on a very important population of patients, and there was something that we could do about that. And I think that that is something that is not discussed enough, especially uh, people who may uh, have not been in practice back in that in that time. And it's, it's very important, and it really informs everything we do. And I think the same thing happens as we'll, we'll dive in deeper into some of the clinical trials that you've conducted that you plan the study, right? And by the time it's completed, things have changed, right? Or a lot of things have occurred. But, uh, um, but I think it's an, a very important point. Uh, could you comment a little bit on how we, we went from giving, I think early was definitely, I mean, I don't think anybody disagrees with early goal-directed therapy, right? With the concept. I mean, the question that now we're trying to figure out is what should be the goals, right? And, and I think that is where we've struggled the most. And like you said, when promise arise and all these other clinical trials came around, the, the wild type was already drastically different than what we had before. Now, in terms of, of your perspective, Nate, uh, could you comment a little bit about this whole idea of being more conservative or restrictive with fluid versus the liberal administration and how we start thinking about this uh, as a potential target for our resuscitation? Sure. So, you know, in general, it, as you mentioned, the pendulum, it's been a swinging pendulum over the last really 20 years. So there's pre-rivers where we're probably under-resuscitating. 
and then post rivers where there's concerns for over resuscitation. And there's a lot of discussion about that. And so then the, the idea rose and there's a lot of observational studies out there that show associations between the amount of fluids given or the fluid balance and adverse outcomes. The only problem is there's also a lot of confounding in these observational studies. In other words, patients who are doing really well, you'll leave them alone. They're doing well. Patients who are hypotensive or have a rising lactate who clinically look worse, you typically will do something. And one of the things we can do is add more fluids. So it's possible that at the end of the day, there is this observation, but there's also a big bias by that there's a big bias by indication. In other words, the confounding or confounding by indication, whereas patients who are doing worse are getting more fluids because you're trying to chase their blood pressure. And so it could be that fluids are just a really good biomarker for a sick patient. But those are the kinds of studies that have fueled the discussion that maybe we're over-resuscitating. Um, and there's, it's, valid, it's a valid question, a valid discussion. And the irony of this swinging pendulum between a lot of fluids and a little fluids, conservative versus liberal fluid management, is that a lot of that discussion has occurred in the absence of data. And while that's typically what happens, right, if you have a clean study with a clear outcome, there's really not discussion or argument. It's when there's a lack of data that it tends to be more opinionated. And I think that's what happened here. So we, we, we obviously now in the last couple of years have had a, um, a couple of randomized studies um, that have been uh, proposed. Two have been completed. The classic and the uh, and the clovers, which is uh, the study you've been involved in, which we'll talk about into detail. And my understanding is that there's another large study ongoing right now that is looking at the similar issue. Is that correct? That's correct. And well, we should also throw in the not throw in, but we should also mention the the trials out of sub-Saharan Africa, yeah. where you know they're different. They're different populations, but still, you know, there's still the principle of liberal versus restrictive fluid resuscitation in a randomized way, and restrictive um, seemed to carry the day in those trials. I think that how that translates to other diseases out of the pediatric population per se um, is unknown, but it still gives pause to the physiology to say in, in one population, restrictive was better. So I think that also fuels the discussion. Yeah. But then we had classic. And the, diff- the big difference between Classic and Clovers, I'm sure we'll get into it a little more, is Classic starts a bit later. So Classic is, is recruits um, by, out of the ICU, whereas Clovers recruits earlier. But still with Classic, we saw, no, no, we saw good separation between the approaches and we saw no difference in outcomes. Okay. So, and, and just to, to refresh our audience memory, the, the sub-Saharan studies you referred to were in pediatric kids, mostly sick with malaria. And that was, uh, I think, uh, an important finding because the presumption was that fluids are not that harmful, that if anything, they're going to have a great impact and that we're going to save a whole bunch of kids by giving them just fluid. And lo and behold, like you said, fluids actually killed more more kids, probably from pulmonary edema and other complications than the ones who got restrictive fluids. So like you said, it, it causes us some pause and maybe what we thought was straightforward is a little bit more complicated. So let's exactly. let's dive into into uh, into clovers, which is really, I mean, obviously, what we want to talk about today. And then through the the lens of clovers, also want to hear a little bit more about your perspective as a clinician and and where you stand today. 
So why don't we start with uh, the name? It's always I always find it in, interesting with with the name. And could you tell us what Clover stands for? So it's crystally liberal or vasopressor early resuscitation in sepsis. And we we had some, um, you know, any good study needs a good acronym, but we also have clear ethical guidelines that we do not cheat. We don't do the thing where you use the the second letter capitalized. So so this is true first letter. The credit goes, the final credit goes to Indy and his family, because evidently it's a family affair between him and his kids to come up with the right acronym. So he nailed it. It also, this is, um, the study is conducted by the Pedal Network, yep. sponsored by NHLBI. And the theme is, the, the, the theme of Pedal is that uh, all studies have to be plant-related. So, so it had to be a plant or flower-related study. Cool. There you go. I mean, I, I always wonder what are the, the backdoor discussions on, on the names, but you're right. It, it follows all the, the rules in terms that it is a plant. It only uses the first letter of uh, of the ac- uh, of the words in the acronym, but more importantly, I think it's a good description of what you were trying to do. So, why don't you tell us about the hypothesis and what you were really uh, trying to to demonstrate or study here? Yeah. So the the real study is so it's really comparing a fluid minded approach versus vasopressor minded approach, and it was. Um, initially we said we want to know a lot of fluids versus the little fluids. But then as we were discussing this from a clinical perspective and Todd Rice um, from Vanderbilt gets the credit for really, um, really making the description in a very clear and concise way, which is it's really fluids first with vasopressors later versus vasopressors early in the course with fluids later after the initial resuscitation. So we felt that patients were going to get that initial roughly 20 cc to 30 cc kg bolus, roughly, or, you know, when they hit the door, pre-hospital, et cetera. So we said, let's acknowledge that you're going to get an initial bolus of fluids. And if that fixes you, then we're done. But if it doesn't fix you, then we want to know, should we reach for more fluids and keep reaching for fluids and then go to vasopressors? In other words, fill up the tank before going to vasopressors? Or is it okay to do vasopressors right away? And, and that's really, we're trying to compare those two groups. And more importantly, we really tried to find a balance, and we'll get into this a little bit more, between a pragmatic trial, um, an efficacy trial versus an effectiveness trial. In other words, we were really trying to say, if I'm a physician at the bedside of a patient and I'm going to take a liberal approach, how would I resuscitate the patient? And so we then created a protocol so we could reproduce our approach and and describe what we did. But the idea is I'm a physician at the bedside. What am I going to do if I'm a liberal-minded physician? And then on the other side of the coin, I'm a restrictive-minded physician or conservative fluid management-minded physician. I really think fluids are bad, and I'm going to go to vasopressors early. How would I treat my patient? And so we wrote two protocols kind of to to really try and reproduce or characterize those personas and resuscitating the patient. Absolutely. And before we move forward, just, I mean, for, for benefit of our audience, pragmatic trials are something that 10 years ago I rarely encounter or I don't even think I, I can remember people talking about that but especially with COVID and, and before COVID as well but I think it's it's accelerated 
and more and more we we read about pragmatic trials and, and critical care specifically. Um, could you just uh, tell us what do you understand or how do you define pragmatic trial? So pragmatic is something where there's really little interference from the study teams. And a pure pragmatic trial here would have been essentially to randomize patients to a liberal group and then just to hand a note to the clinicians that say, please use a liberal approach and then let it run versus one that says, please use a restrictive approach and let it run. Now, if we did that, we were worried that we wouldn't really test the hypothesis we were seeking to test. So what we did was we created uh, clinical protocols that give more specific suggestions. It's instructions slash suggestions for each of those approaches. But I also want to underscore that in that, we also wanted to acknowledge that there would be some important clinical judgment that would need to be involved in any bedside care. And so one of the, the, the instructions per se was if there's something that you, that if the clinical team feels is in the best interest of the patient, then they should do it. And so it was use a restrictive approach, but if something comes up or something arises where you think you need to override this protocol and just do give fluids to the patient, then you're allowed to do it. And so we really tried to find the balance between this. Let's just let it run in, in, the, in, um, let's just let it run and just see how it works out in clinical practice by just saying, please do restrictive and please do liberal versus some rigid criteria that can't be broken. And so that's why we're, we described it or thought of it really as a, as a hybrid pragmatic or hybrid effective um, efficacy versus effectiveness trial. Perfect. And I think that um, just to uh, um, emphasize a point you made, which I think is super important for this topic, is that really when we talk about hemodynamic support and sepsis-induced hypotension, septic shock, it, it's the combination and the sequence, right, or the timing of fluids and vasopressors usually that, that is difficult. And like you said, I mean, this is not only a fluid trial because what a lot of people will do in these patients is keep giving fluid with the idea of delaying or minimizing the use of vasopressors. And uh, if you just look at the vasopressor story, there's also a pendulum, right? And pre-rivers, a lot of people would argue that because these patients got no fluid, using vasopressors in them might have been harmful for the kidneys and for other, for other um, organs. So I think it's finding that balance, right? The timing of and the combination of and uh, really, I think in practice, a lot of people just keep giving fluid uh, as a vasopressor sparing kind of uh, technique, let's call it. Agreed. And, and I'd also um, like to highlight that the inclusion criteria for our trial were actually blood pressure less than 100 after initial minimum of one liter fluids, a systolic of less than 100. And that was very deliberate because we felt that there was a, a group of patients in the traditional you know, above 90 in the traditional shock definition, but below 100 where they're still reasonably relatively hypotensive, where the practice is let's give them a lot of fluids so their systolic doesn't dip below 90, at which point we'll feel compelled to give vasopressors. Yeah. So since patients hovering in the 90s end up getting a lot of fluids um, in order to keep them from that 90 ICU mandatory kind of zone, we felt that it's important to know whether that practice is actually harmful. So for the patients in 90 to 100, what we were actually testing in the restrictive group 
was just stopping, right? Just, just sit on your hands. Don't worry. Let someone be in the nineties and watch them. Yeah, perfect. And, uh, to remind everybody, the hypothesis was that the restrictive vasopressor early would, would be associated with a better outcome. Correct. Correct. And it was, it was a 90 day mortality prior to discharge. Can you explain the, the primary outcome in more detail? Because I think that some people, I've, I've, I've just discussed the trial, and it seems that some people got a little bit confused because it, it's a patient-relevant outcome, obviously, but there's certain rules, like what happens if, if you, you get discharged or, or didn't get discharged by 90 days, and how was it applied? Sure. So it, it's a little bit of a... It's an outcome that we've been using as part of the pedal network and actually its predecessor, ArtsNet, for some time. But the idea is if you're discharged from the hospital and you go back to the, the circumstance from where you came, that's considered the end point. So if you come from home, you're admitted to the hospital, and you're discharged before, before 90 days, and that's to your home, then you're considered alive for the analysis and the endpoint, the endpoint in the in the positive directions reached. Now, if you come from home and you're in the hospital and you get discharged to hospice and pass away, um, then you've never made it home. So you've been discharged from the hospital, but you've gone to say hospice and you've never made it home. If you get discharged, and so there would be a negative outcome. Okay. If you get discharged from the hospital and you go to the nursing home and you pass away at the nursing home, also a negative outcome. If you get dished from the hospital and you go to the nursing home and then go back to home, then it's considered a positive. And same if you get dis if you live in a nursing home, come to the hospital and go back to the nursing home, also considered a final conclusion is a positive outcome. Perfect. And uh, in terms of the trial design, um, any comments you want to add Nate, before we move forward? I think there's, it's really, it was really that we tried to simplify it to your come to the hospital, you meet criteria if it's within four hours. So I think the within four hours part is really critical. So four hours from eligibility to enrollment was the eligibility window. On average, patients were randomized within an hour of um, meeting criteria. So we got the patients early. And that, as you pointed out, is a big difference with the classic trial uh, that your patients almost exclusively came through the ED and early. And uh, in the classic trial, you had patients coming from the floor, patients who came from the OR, not necessarily uh, the same kind of time frame of their clinical care. Correct. Uh, you know, in unbalanced, uh, uh, they got the in classic patients were. Uh, enrolled it fairly early in the course, but it's definitely a, a discrepancy in the trial. I think we were about 92 or 93% of patients from the emergency department, and they had about 30 patients or so coming from the floor and some coming from the operating room. Perfect. You, you mentioned uh, the patient population, some of the inclusion criteria. Uh, any relevant exclusion criteria you want to share? I mean, at the end of the day, it was what could a patient be reasonably randomized to either arm? So if patients had, say, DKA and were severely volume depletes, then they can't really be as well be randomized to restrictive. Or if a patient comes in in a state of, of fluid overload, then 
you're not really, it wouldn't make sense to randomize them to the liberal group where they're then going to get more fluid. And so it had to be a patient where there's equipoise based on the available data on which direction they could go. And then if there's equipoise and the clinician says, okay, I'm willing to do both. Because the other thing we didn't want to do was randomize a patient to the liberal group and then have somebody say, I don't think patients should ever, ever get fluids. Um, and so if there was equipoise on the patient in that zone, then essentially they were eligible to be enrolled. And the criteria were really structured around realizing that that equipoise. So if a patient had already received over three liters of fluids, they, they wouldn't be enrolled because they're already towards the liberal group. Perfect. So let's talk about the trial uh, intervention and what really happened. So the, the patient um, met criteria. It was early on. They usually, like you said, would have gotten their initial bolus. They still had blood pressure issues. They would be enrolled. And uh, what happened and for how long at that point? So if they go to the liberal group, then the first thing that happens, and they're randomized to the liberal group, the first thing that happens is um, you titrate vasopressors down if you can, if it's safe, um, and then you give a, a what is going to be ultimately a two-liter infusion, and you can, at the one-liter mark, you would stop, assess the patient. If their volume replete and their vital signs have normalized, then you don't need to continue the, the rest of the second leader. That's at the discretion of the physician. But if they're not volume replete by clinical assessment and or their vital signs aren't normalized and we put parameters around that, they continue it out. So in the liberal group, essentially, most patients go out about an initial two leaders. And then from there, there's the criteria to give fluids, which if you look at it, we just find something, we gave some suggestions like heart rate or lactate, et cetera. But there's also a line that any clinical indication. So if any reason at the bedside, a clinician thinks the patient needs more fluids, then the instruction is to give more fluids. If any measured reason, and we, we didn't want to make this a device trial. So we had considered um, using non, non-invasive hemodynamic monitoring or considered using um, echo, et cetera, but we kind of wanted to try and keep this as simple and gen- most as generalizable as possible. And so we, we essentially said, you can use whatever you want. Um, if you think a patient needs more fluid, give them more fluid. And we also did provide some general guidance around if you are going to do non-invasive hemodynamic monitoring or echo about fluid responsiveness, et cetera. But it was just general guidance. It wasn't mandated in the trial. And the truth is, at the end of the day, um, we asked about it. And it, it seems that there was very little uh, kind of more advanced monitoring used to guide these decisions. Then in the fluid, we also gave, um, we call them rescue criteria, which is if you think that you need to cross over from fluids to use vasopressors, we gain some general guidance around the circumstances where we recommend you do that. It would be extreme hypotensive. If you have a patient just completely crashing in their um, blood pressures, systolic of 50 and you feel like you need to hang some vasopressors that was allowable if after you've given five liters of fluids in total you want to go to vasopressors you could do that at any time because we felt like after five liters we've realized there's a liberal fluid resuscitation if your lactate um, was elevated and rising that was another reason to cross over so we tried to give general indications to give fluid which was really at the end of the day just about anything you wanted to do clinically and then um, cross rescue criteria for if you want to go to vasopressors before it was 
uh, that that arm of the trial was complete. Perfect. And the other the other arm? Yeah, and then restrictive. So the first thing we do is stop fluids. There was a provision. There was some uh, concern about whether uh, all patients need to have that 20 cc per kg bolus, 20 or 30 cc per kg bolus. And we weren't testing that in particular. It was kind of part of it. So we said any patient in restrictive can have up to two liters of fluids for whatever reason. But after that, um, we just essentially, if patient's hypotensive, you'd hang vasopressors. If you got to high doses of vasopressors, that was some of the indication for rescue fluids. If there was any sign of peripheral ischemia, if the lactate was elevated and rising, et cetera. So in general, it was try not to use fluids unless you really need to and need to cross over. Perfect. And um, one, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, Nate. Go ahead. I say one other one other element that wasn't really a randomized element of the trial, but I think it, it was an important highlight was when we were and just for perspective, the way the trial was created was we had the Clovers Committee, which was a a, a group of maybe fifteen or twenty. Um, emergency physicians, critical care physicians, some surgeons, some nurses, and we put our heads together and said, let's, from a clinical perspective, really design these arms. One of the big discussion points that came up was the use of peripheral vasopressors. And there was, when we were having these discussions, there was a lot of physicians and institutions who were using some peripheral vasopressors, whereas other institutions, they weren't. They almost thought it was taboo, and there was protocols against it. And so we felt that this was, there was really a growing uh, experience with the use. People in general, their experience was that it was safe. And we also felt that if we want to facilitate early vasopressors, this was a way to do it. Put a peripheral IV and start your vasopressors and then switch over to central line at some point if it looks like it's going to be persistent. And so we wrote vaso, uh, the use of peripheral vasopressors um, into the trial where it was a protocol specified allowable action and we also put it into the consent so that way if there's institutions where they typically didn't use peripheral vasopressors it was consented for from the patient perspective the clinician had to approve it and it was allowed an allowable action and at the end of the day in our 1563 patients about 500 patients for 500 patients actually received peripheral vasopressors between the two arms we also followed that specifically for um, any problems or complications or adverse events. And, and we can we can probably comment on that a little bit more uh, ahead because that was something that when you presented the the findings at the Society of Critical Care Medicine annual meeting earlier the, uh, this year uh, surprised me. Not necessarily that it's a it's a discussion topic in a lot of places, but. Uh, when you, when you talked about 500 patients that received, that you actually had studied within the, the Clover study that received peripheral vasopressors, that was very interesting. So we'll, we'll come back to that. And I think it's a, it's a great example of how when we study, um, when, we, when we take these enormous efforts to do these large clinical trials, uh, even if the hypothesis is considered a negative finding, there's a lot that we can learn about how to improve and advance care that comes from these these efforts and we'll we'll get back to that but thanks for sharing that quick question in terms of uh, a and and i just also want to point out that uh, the protocols obviously are shared in the in the manuscript and uh, they're beautiful i mean very concise 
but um, I'm sure that getting to that level of, of clearness uh, required a lot of discussion and back and forth. Yeah, it did. It, it was a lot of discussion, a lot of thoughtful discussion. And, and probably the most informative was there was clearly clinicians who wore the hat of a liberal um, clinician and clearly those who had a bias towards a restrictive. And really what we tried to do is we wanted the, the restrictive clinicians to feel good about the restrictive protocol and the liberal clinicians to feel about good about the liberal protocol. Yeah. And, and, and so we, there was discussions and tips and, you know, we kind of put it back and forth and we kind of hammered it out until we got reasonable consensus between the groups. Excellent. So tell us what happened first. Uh, why don't we go over um, how long was this protocol implemented and why, and uh, what happened during that time of the protocol implementation were the groups different and what happened throughout the trial? Sure. So the, in the liberal group, it was up to 24 hours or uh, once you hit the five liter mark, then you went to usual care. Um, we were very specific because as you remember, the rivers was six hours and we, we felt that we really wanted to cross that because it didn't make sense. We needed, you know, the first resuscitation period usually exceeds six hours. And so that's why we bridged it out to 24. In the restrictive group, it was 24 hours um, and then went to usual care. And so that was, that's the protocol period. The groups were definitely different um, in terms of fluids. There's about a two liter difference at the end of the day. Um, but when you look at it, it was a lot of the real action happened in the first six hours, in fact. So mm -hmm. if you look at the six hour period, it was a median of 500 cc's compared to in the restrictive group compared to 2300 in the liberal group. And then over 24 hours, it was 1267 cc's versus 3400. And the difference was um, 2.1 liters. And then on the vasopressor side, there was more prevalent use of vasopressors in the restrictive group. It's 59% to 37% for a 21.7% difference, whereas time to randomization was earlier in the restrictive group, 1.8 hours versus 3.2 hours, and vasopressors were used longer in the restrictive group, 9.6 hours versus 5.4 hours. So looking at more fluids in the liberal group, earlier, more prevalent, and longer use of vasopressors in the restrictive group, we felt that we had done a, we performed a clinical trial and there was two different groups that were tested and the protocols were followed enough to achieve the separation. So we felt pretty good about it. And, and, I, and I know that and you mentioned that also in the protocol adherence, um, we're talking about 96 and 97%, I think. So very well uh, documented, at least of what you could measure, which also I think is also very important and reflects the point that you made earlier that these were actual protocols to be used at the bedside and clinically relevant. That's correct. So what did the results show? So as far as our primary outcome of mortality, no difference between the groups. Uh, the, in the, the liberal group, it was 14.9% mortality compared to 14.0% in the restrictive group. And the, the difference was not statistically significant, a P of 0.61. Um, and then when we looked across all of our secondary outcomes, those were also no difference between the groups. So at the end of the day, it was two approaches to resuscitation 
inpatients who were identified on average within an hour um, and where we paid close attention to them for at least 24 hours in the protocol period or afterwards, and it led to the same outcomes. Absolutely. And and I think uh, worth mentioning um, for our audience, at the end, you had a little bit over 1,500 patients, but the trial was terminated early, right? Correct. So there was there was uh, pre-planned interim analyses at one-third of the way through the trial, two-thirds of the way through the trial, and then, there, well, then you would complete the trial. And at two-thirds, it was the DSMB looked at the data and felt that um, there was no difference between the groups and that enrolling additional patients was not going to change that. Also of note, there was uh, no difference. We had secondary outcomes such as organ failure-free days, um, and there no difference there. Vent-free days, no difference there. New intubation, no difference. Serious adverse events, no difference. So really, in addition to not hitting the primary outcome two-thirds of the way through, everything across the board looked very similar. So they just felt that it was terminated due to fees, due to um, essentially uh, due to futility because they felt that enrolling additional patients was unlikely to change the outcome. So one aspect about this trial that for me is um, fascinating as a clinician who is part of a very large community practice of critical care is that the Hawthorne effect, right? And the, 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 the point that you have a, a very elegant uh, protocol for either restrictive or liberal that I'm sure because people were aware they're part of a trial was probably taken very seriously. And I would imagine that where you're a liberal uh, camp or restrictive camp uh, in the community or, or in the wild type care community or academic, not every patient probably gets the same level of attention in terms of fulfilling this protocol. And that itself, I think, is something probably very, very important and valuable for, for clinical care. Any thoughts on that, Nate? Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, this is, you have to remember that in order to interpret these results, it's in the backdrop of a patient who's identified early on average one hour from being having a blood pressure less than 100 after a liter of fluids who um, receives in the liberal group care that looks like um, several liters of fluid within the first few hours and then additional fluid or in restrictive that looks like vasopressors given reasonably early if they're indicated. And so it's really, at the end of the day, what I, what I took from process promise and arise was that goal-directed therapy was no better than, um, than no goal-directed therapy, but in the backdrop of identifying the patients early and performing what looks like a pretty vigorous resuscitation. And I think that carries over here, which is you still need compulsive care at the bedside. It's just compulsive care. In the setting of compulsive care, it doesn't matter if you reach for fluids first or vasopressors first. And I have to say, for me personally, so I entered the, I would say it's fair to say that I entered the, the trial as a clinician who typically used a, a liberal, in general, a liberal approach to resuscitation that was very fluid predominant. However, there were certainly patients that I either helped with as part of the, the research team or helped with just because they were my own patients enrolled in the trial. 
And for those patients, when they were randomized to restrictive, what I realized very on, early on in the trial is for most patients, I can make them normotensive with either approach. Most patients, their blood pressure would correct whether I use a fluid-centric approach or a vasopressor-centric approach. What I didn't know during the trial was if one approach or the other led to better outcomes from the patient's perspective. And I think now that the trial is complete, what I've learned is both both are reasonable alternatives if you pay attention to all parts of the care. So in terms of uh, um, future research questions and um, with um, the post-clovers, are there specific areas that uh, the, the group is interested in or uh, are we going to wait and see uh, trials that are ongoing and try to put all that together? Where do you think we, we go from here? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So there's still, we have, there's, there's a couple trials that are ongoing now as secondary parts of Clover. Uh, there's one that myself and Eric Schmidt from Mass General are doing, which is our hypothesis is that glycocalyx degradation is important. And the essentially patients who have glycocalyx, the first hypothesis that a fluid liberal approach will um, lead to increased glycocalyx degradation is a, a, a hypothesis we're testing. So we're doing biomarkers mass spec. And the second hypothesis is glycocalyx degradation is important in relation to outcomes. And the third and perhaps more important one is whether there's patients with certain profiles of glycocalyx degradation who may preferentially benefit from one arm or the other. So are there subgroups of patients who are going to do better with fluids versus are there other subgroups of patients who will do better with a restrictive approach? And then in that germane, we have um, some echo-based studies going on that Sam Brown is leading. And then just in general, I think there's an, we didn't really look for two, there was no difference in the subgroups that we looked at, but it's possible that other approaches, certainly more advanced molecular phenotyping approaches may identify certain populations that may benefit from uh, one approach or the other. Interesting. And I think that ultimately, obviously, um, we always talk about personalized medicine, but getting there yeah. is a lot more difficult than, than talking about it. But that would be, I guess, the direction, which makes sense, right? We, we have this very heterogeneous syndrome, and uh, to believe that one simple um, size fits all is probably not, not the, right, uh, the right route. Exactly. So as we move uh, to, towards a closing, Nate, I, I wanted to, to touch one more time on that peripheral vasopressor discussion, because as you mentioned, this is something that uh, is a topic of discussion in many ICUs. Some have been more... A progressive and embracing the use of um, uh, vasopressors administered through peripheral line. I think with the right precautions, it seems to be something that can be done. But like a lot of our discussions, we have to be careful that the pendulum doesn't swing too far because there are benefits and there are some patients in whom a timely central line probably is important. And uh, I just think that um, obviously that was not the primary um hypothesis you were testing, but I don't believe that we have another group of 500 patients who had peripherally infused vasopressors within the context of a clinical trial where we have some data. Could you comment on this a little bit more, what you found and uh, what, what is your personal take? Yeah, so we found, so it's 50 patients, 500 patients received in one arm or the other peripheral um, vasopressors. And then 
there was three reported incidents of adverse events. It was three episodes of extravasation, and all three were self-limited and didn't lead to any clinical consequences. So in this sample of 500 patients, it looks like a reasonably safe practice. You know, I think that it includes trying to make sure just general common sense approaches, like making sure you have a decent line. It's not a really small lane line that's tenuous and hanging halfway out of the arm. But for, in general, if you have a good line and, and use this approach, it lets you get the vasopressors in earlier. The other thing that we saw from the trial, this is from experience, is that a lot of times we'd start vasopressors and then the, and, and also looking at the data, and then the vasopressors 12 hours later would just come off. They would just not be needed anymore. So a lot of the vasopressors, in, in, or there's a subset of patients who needed hours worth of vasopressors or who received hours worth of vasopressors and then would become normotensive and drift up and it, and it spared those patients in the central line. Certainly there was more central lines placed in the restrictive group than in the liberal group. Um, the other thing to, to comment on as well is there was about, I think it was 8% more patients in the restrictive group went to the ICU compared to the liberal group, presumptively because of this uh, basal, because of, of the earlier more chronic use of vasopressors. But one could say, it's a secondary analysis, but one could say it's a little bit less ICU utilization in the liberal group. Or another way to operationalize it is the practice of giving fluids to see if you can get to normal tension without vasopressors um, does not appear to have had negative effects in this study. Interesting. So as we close, um, obviously this is a topic that has been part of your research uh, interest for, for, for some years now, and this is not the first study, obviously, that you've been involved or the last, but you're also a practicing clinician. So my, my departing question on this topic is, um, if you could share with us any lessons for the bedside. So how uh, do you approach resuscitation with fluid and vasopressors in your sepsis-induced hypotension patients, and any practical advice you want to share with our clinicians? Yeah, I'd say it's still compulsive care at the bedside. It's still treat, assess the response, reassess the patient, and then treat again. Um, it's just that I've now included, uh, I think it's fair to include vasopressors, in particular peripheral vasopressors, um, into the armamentarium. It's changed my practice a bit in that I'll reach for vasopressors a little bit earlier, knowing that this is equally a good choice as fluids. Um, and then in the bigger picture, I've been kind of squabbling over fluids and vasopressors personally in the research world for a decade or two. And maybe if we're going to make real gains or strides in improvement towards patient outcomes, we have to look towards other therapies, novel therapies, um, Bio, biologically directed therapies in order to find that outcome is perhaps not going to be, or I, I think it's less promising that it's going to be through the right balance of fluids or vasopressors. Absolutely. So we, we like to close uh, the podcast, Nate, with some questions that are unrelated to the clinical topic. Would that be okay? Yeah, sure. The first question relates to books. And I was wondering if there are any, if there's a book or any books that have influenced you very deeply or that you have gifted frequently to friends? Yeah, so there's a book called, there's a little bit of a story behind it, but it's a book called Extreme Ownership. It's by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin, and there are two Navy SEALs, and it, it's kind 
women directed towards the business world where they take lessons from their Navy SEAL training and battle experience and say how that goes towards good team dynamics or goal-directed operations or orientation in the business world. But I find that it applies to the medical world and maybe life in general. And it just uses some of those SEAL training techniques, defining an objective, making sure the team knows the objective, good communication, et cetera. And, and I found that to be just a useful book. Yeah. Um, and, and so that, that, that's, my, that's my answer. And Perfect. I gifted that more than anything. Yeah, and we will, we will definitely link that. It's an excellent book. And for those of uh, our audience who are active on, uh, on Twitter, Look up Joko Wilkins and uh, you can be shamed every morning around 4 a.m. when he starts his workout, right? Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Um, the second question is something that you believe to be true in medicine or life that most other people don't believe or don't act like they believe. Uh, I don't know if most people don't believe it, but at the end of the day, I feel like simple observation and common sense is perhaps the key skill at the bedside. More, more important than complex readouts or sophisticated analysis, but really taking a step back, seeing the forest through the trees, and, and just some of these simple things that are, are right there staring you in the face that you just need to receive and act on um, is maybe the most important. And I think it is very powerful, and I do believe that if people agree with that statement, not it's not what we see on a regular basis because one of my observations has always been that common sense is quite uncommon. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Perfect. And the last question, Nate, relates to what would you want every intensivist and APP listening to us to know? Could be a quote, a fact, or just a thought on what we discussed today. So uh, I'll respond in two. One is there's a quote. I think I actually heard it first from Wes Ely, and it's less intensivist, but just more in general in the research world which is the reason to do research is to help patients that you'll never meet, to see if you can find some sort of truth or knowledge or clinical tip or fact that's not going to be used on your patients, but that you can share that will help other patients. Um, and the second one kind of related to our simple and observation, but just compulsive care and kindness at the end of the day is perhaps most important and paying attention to the details for the patient and then also the, the needs of the patient families are as we all know, um, really at the end of the day, what could be the most important. Perfect. And I think this is a very good place to stop. I want to thank you first for the tremendous effort that the whole Clover's team has put forward. I, I think people sometimes um, don't appreciate how much effort uh, these trials take and how much uh, uh, involvement the clinicians, the investigators, and everybody who participates has in this, and uh, it's very important for us to advance, obviously, the care we provide. also want to thank you for being so generous with your time and expertise today, and uh, definitely hope to have you back on the podcast to discuss more, more of your research, but also more of these clinical topics. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And I also want to echo that this, this trial was a real team approach between the um, Clover's committee, the 60 hospitals involved, all the nurses, clinicians, research assistants. It, it was really a tremendous effort all around. Thanks, Nate. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound's transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. 
To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.